National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. We're continuing our exploration of the U.S. Space Force for today's program. You may recall we did a show earlier this month on Space Systems Command with Colonel Joseph Roth. That show helped us to understand some of the space system development programs, RDT&E for space capabilities, how Space Systems Command is organized, and we learned a bit about the Americans who are assigned to the command. Today we're taking a deep dive into another major component command inside the U.S. Space Force. We're looking at Space Operations Command, and our guest today is Colonel Matthew Cantori. Colonel Cantori is the Director of Combat Power at Headquarters Space Operations Command. Combat Power is an element of the Operations Directorate at Space Operations Command, and Colonel Cantori manages orbital warfare, space electronic warfare, space domain awareness, and cyber capabilities generated, employed, and sustained in the command, as well as employment considerations, planning factors, and integration with combat command requirements, plans, and directives. Colonel Cantori commissioned into the U.S. Air Force in 1998 after graduating from the United States Air Force Academy, and he has commanded America's airmen at the squadron and group levels and held a range of leadership positions in space and intercontinental ballistic missile operations. With an extraordinary mix of air operations and space operations in his career track, including command of the 21st Operations Group of the 21st Space Wing, among other, other assignments, Colonel Matthew Cantori will help us to better understand U.S. Space Force operations during this show. Colonel Matthew Cantori of U.S. Space Force, welcome to National Security This Week. Well, good morning, John. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. It's, uh, it's an honor to speak to you and to the uh, constituency you have there in Minnesota. And I look forward to talking to you about Space Force. Uh, certainly, it's an area I have great passion uh, and uh, such excitement. Uh, we've had so much change over the last couple of years. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to, to talk about uh, what is going on behind the scenes uh, as the Space Force uh, enters almost its third year. And uh, we have a lot going on and a lot to do to make sure that we continue to support our nation in the best means possible and to continue to, to defend ourselves and our allies. Now, now, Colonel, you and I are up on Zoom this morning, so we can have a face-to-face -face conversation. Uh, where where are you sitting this morning? So it's a lovely morning here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, in fact, I drove in. The, uh, the sun was uh, illuminating Pikes Peak just perfectly. And uh, so that's where, uh, that is where the Space Operations Command headquarters is based out of. All right. So, Colonel, we have an hour, which seems like a long time, but I can assure you our time is going to fly by this morning, almost at orbital velocities. <laughs> Let's get right into our show. Uh, I'd like to start a little bit more about you, your background. What drew you to apply to and then attend the U.S. Air Force Academy in, in Colorado Springs? Yeah, John. So I actually uh, I grew up in upstate New York, uh, just outside of Albany. Uh, which uh, if you know anything of the geography of New York, everybody focuses in on the city. And uh, that is where the majority of the population is. But the state has uh, much more to it, just like I'm sure, you know, many other places do. And so I grew up in, in really the, uh, the suburbs there of, of the state capital. Uh, and uh, there was very little military presence uh, growing up. But what there was uh, was certainly a great fixation on space. Uh, and uh, during my, my formative years, uh, those were the years of the space shuttle. 
And uh, of course, uh, the Challenger uh, incident is uh, uh, is etched uh, in, in my mind, uh, and certainly played a, a significant part of, of uh, continuing my drive for wanting to not only learn about that that tragedy and that event in, in American history, but also uh, just about space as a, as a fascinating uh, domain to explore, but one that really drew me in. And so as I as I kind of grew up and, and went through high school, got more involved in computer science and some of the science and, and technology fields, uh, I felt a, a calling to do something with the space industry. Wasn't quite sure what that was uh, and then had a, had a good fortune uh, of a family member that introduced me to the Air Force Academy and uh, in the uh, application process for that. So I took the plunge. Uh, and as I as we had talked before this, I know you uh, you are a Naval Academy grad. Uh, I knew nothing about the Air Force Academy until about my junior year in high school, uh, applied and found that the service academies are a great means to not only uh, get involved uh, with supporting your nation, but also uh, to really uh, dive in on some of those technical fields that, that really fit uh, the services needs. And the Air Force Academy, uh, not only did it certainly support the Air Force uh, and the aviation needs that the nation has, it certainly also was focused on the astronautics piece as well. Uh, and so that's really what draw, drew me to the Academy was that desire to get involved with uh, the space field, space uh, astro engineering, and, uh, and really has kept me involved ever since. A lot of folks, when they go to the Air Force Academy, they go there because they want to fly. Uh, and when I uh, when I applied, I knew I did not have the, the visual uh, you know, the, I didn't have the pilot qualification, if you will, from my eye test. So they knew that wasn't a possibility. Uh, today, things are a little different with some of the uh, corrective surgeries. Uh, but uh, but at the time, I went there solely to do something with a space uh, career and space fields. And uh, when I left four years later, uh, I started my career in that uh, that vein, and I've just continued it ever since. So it's been a fascinating ride and one that has gotten more and more interesting, I think, each year uh, of my career. And I would add uh, to your comment about the service academies that they're probably uh, the best leadership training uh, schools that you could ever come across in the entire United States. Uh, at, at the end of four years, the amount of time and, effort and energy spent training you to lead uh, men and women in the armed forces is uh, second to none. And we just continue to hone those leadership skills throughout our military careers and hopefully throughout our lives in our communities as well. Absolutely. And I think uh, that continued a, a great, uh, great pathway. So not only with the technical track and, and helping open a door for the space industry, uh, but certainly that leadership experience has been invaluable and used many times throughout my career. And, and I wanted to bring that up because we're going to talk a little bit more about the organ the parts of Space Operations sure. Command that you lead. You've had a really great mix of assignments during your career. Uh, what was it that drew you specifically to the Space Force? I mean, there was a lot of things that were going on with the Air Force linked to space, but it was my understanding that everybody had to basically apply to change services to become a guardian in the Space Force. Uh, you chose to leave a long and uh, very successful career in the U.S. Air Force to become a member of the Space Force. I guess it's from what you said before, it sounded like that was sort of meeting, filling the niche that you wanted to fill from the very moment that you applied to the Air Force Academy. Uh, so why did you yeah. choose that path? Uh, it's kind of a risky thing, isn't it? Well, I, I didn't think of it risky at the time. So I had served uh, 22 years, uh, and I was the, uh, as I said, the 21st Operations Group Commander. Uh, but my whole career had been focused on space systems, whether it was uh, working with surveillance systems, mainly radars and telescopes that track objects in orbit, uh, or working with actual spacecraft and doing uh, on-orbit operations. That had been the core of what everything I had really done uh, over those 22 years. And so when the Space Force uh, came into existence, it for me 
there was very little thought that went into it and really debate in my mind. I knew my calling. I, I knew where uh, where the nation uh, needed uh, the Space Force to go. And uh, and so it, it was a pretty easy uh, transition. All of our military uh, military services are filled by men and women uh, that are volunteers. In fact, 100% of our uh, U.S. military is a volunteer force. And so the Space Force is no different. Uh, so whether you were part of the Air Force or any of the other services making a, a transfer into the Space Force, you had to volunteer for that exchange. Uh, and, uh, and for me, it was a, it was a pretty simple decision. Uh, of course, the hardest part now is as you, as you enter into the service, the service is brand new. We don't create services very often. <laughs> of course, the last one was the Air Force in, in uh, now 75 years ago in 1947. Uh, and so how do you create a modern service using the attributes you would see across uh, the best aspects of the various services, but also the business community and, and uh, working with our international allies? And so it was a great opportunity for us to start something new and yet at the same time blend uh, those key aspects of what makes the U.S. military and its various services very special. And you mentioned that uh, you had to transfer in from the other services as the U.S. Space Force stood up. I, I'd read an article just uh, a couple weeks ago talking about the fact that Space Force now controls all of the military satellites, that the Army's uh, contingent of space operations just transferred into the Space Force. Is that right? That is correct. So uh, we have been on this uh, pathway to bring all of the satellite communications or SATCOM mission areas, um, which were for a long time, they were broken up uh, in various services. So the Army uh, had a portion, the Navy had a portion as well, supported fleet operations. Uh, and of course, the preponderance, though, was with the Air Force. And so as the Space Force then moved forward, we took those satellite communications missions and pulled them together. We also are bringing in uh, the commercial satellite communications office. Uh, we have a, uh, there's so many providers of satellite communications these days. Uh, it's, it, it does not make sense for the U.S. military to try to do everything on its own. We have to partner uh, with those available capabilities in the commercial sector. And satellite communications has been one of the great ways to do so. But, but that is just an example. Um, there were other, uh, other space capabilities that were uh, in the various services. And so as we move forward, uh, we are consolidating a large portion of those uh, services or those capabilities together for the service to provide the joint force. Uh, Colonel, I'd like to ask one quick follow-up question from something you said yeah. earlier, something you talked about during your career path. Uh, a lot of it was on sort of radar or telescope-based uh, space operations, tracking objects in space. Uh, could you just sort of give our listeners a, a sense of how many objects there are up there in, in, in orbit in space and how dangerous it's becoming with all these uh, space debris objects that are floating around up there? Absolutely, John. Happy to talk about that. So when I when I was commissioned in 1998, uh, my very first operational assignment was at Clear Air Force Station at the time, now Clear Space Force Station, up in the interior of Alaska. Uh, and there at Clear, we had a uh, a radar uh, and a tracking. Uh, so it was a a uh, it was a missile warning radar, but it also had the ability to track objects on orbit uh, from a from a space surveillance standpoint. So a dual mission. Uh, and at the time, we, uh, we in our space catalog, uh, which is a historic catalog of all of the objects that had gone into the space domain and, and achieved at least one revolution, um, were up at about the 19 to 20,000 total cataloged objects over the history uh, at that time. Today, we are sitting, uh, that catalog has grown, and we're sitting in the, uh, the object numbers, that 46,000. 
thousand objects. So if you look at that, now not all of them are still in orbit. Uh, a large number of those will uh, will decay at the end of their uh, their lifetime, uh, and they uh, they they in essence re-enter. Uh, but we're sitting around the, the forty thousand objects threshold, and really these last two years has grown tremendously. What I like to call the age of mega constellations is upon us. Um, everyone hears the terms Starlink and SpaceX. Obviously, SpaceX is, is one of those companies that is launching uh, lots of uh, satellites into orbit, um, but they uh, they are pushing a, uh, a mega constellation known as the Starlink uh, constellation, which is going to have hundreds and eventually uh, thousands of satellites. And they're not the only ones. You're seeing that proliferation uh, across the domain. And so we are continuing to see uh, a large growth in objects very rapidly. Uh, and with that uh, comes comes challenges. Um, there is no, today, there is no uh, de facto traffic management. Uh, <laughs> we don't have obviously, you know, green lights, red lights and that type of thing, nor do we have an FAA equivalent that says uh, object A, you need to move around object B. We are moving that direction. And so uh, I think you're, you're in the, the stage of development probably over the next couple of years uh, where you'll see the US uh, codify its way forward for straight space traffic management, uh, that we will continue to surveil uh, all the objects on orbit. Uh, and then of course, it's working with the uh, international community uh, as well, because uh, the US is obviously not the only nation that has a tremendous number of objects on orbit. Uh, it is continuing to grow. So there's a lot there. You know, back in the day, you probably could have referred to it like a big space theory uh, <laughs> that the the chance of probability collision was so low because of the just the sheer volume uh, that you were operating in. Um, but as we uh, have more and more objects uh, and we have debris pieces and uh, and whatnot, the the chance of collision increases significantly. So it's something we are concerned with, uh, and we we watch it very closely every single day. Yeah, and, and Colonel Cantori, you mentioned uh, st the Starlink uh, constellation of satellites that's going up on the commercial side. There's another uh, e company called eSpace uh, out of Tampa, Florida, that supposedly wants to put up somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 <laughs> satellites for communications purposes. I can't even imagine what that's going to look like. And what you're talking about, uh, those objects, those 46,000 cataloged uh, objects, those aren't satellites. I mean, there are, there are a lot of satellites, but... It's debris, right. debris, right? From from the yeah. anti-satellite missile tests that the Russians and the Chinese and the Indians have done. And so we have to navigate around that debris for our satellite operations. Absolutely, a small portion of those total catalog objects are actual payloads. Uh, the, the vast majority are uh, debris pieces, whether they're uh, debris that was left over from various launches. And I, I think we've become, uh, as, a, as, a, as a nation and certainly across the world, more cognizant of uh, of leaving debris on orbit and making sure that we uh, we minimize that. Um, but uh, yeah, there there were been two uh, anti-satellite tests uh, uh, of note. Um, the one was the uh, the Chinese test uh, uh, where they uh, destroyed a defunct weather satellite of their own back in two thousand and seven. Uh, and then of course the uh, the Russians did a test. Uh, recently last uh, the end of last year as well and so those 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 tests leave thousands of objects of debris on orbit um, and uh, with our system we're able to uh, to track uh, the vast majority of those um, the good news is most of those pieces begin to, to decay uh, rapidly but there's some just due to the the orbits uh, that will be up there for for years uh, and, and uh, certainly it's a great concern um, and then there's also an Indian uh, ASAT test that occurred previously in the past as well. So, so uh, there's certainly uh, actors in the domain uh, that uh, create additional challenges uh, to, to operating as well. 
Uh, Colonel Matthew Cantori, let's shift over to Space Operations Command now. Uh, can you please explain to our listeners how the U.S. Space Force is, or- is organized and where Space Operations Command sits inside your military service? Absolutely, John. So I tell you, it, it was a, it's been a great honor helping to, to set up the Space Force. So not only did I make that jump uh, at the 22-year point, the last uh, two and a half years, almost three years since we uh, activated the Space Force, um, I got to be on uh, one of the teams that helped to lay out and set up uh, the architecture of, uh, of the Space Force and primarily the Space Operations Command. And so it's been great to, to watch us put together uh, the pieces and, and make this new service and its new structure a reality. That has been one of the core achievements for us uh, over the last few years. Like all military services, they are all headquarters out of the Pentagon. So there's no difference between the Space Force than there is, say, the Army, Navy, Marine Corps uh, as well. Uh, And so our service headquarters uh, is uh, there in Washington, D.C. Underneath the headquarters, though, we we are flat. We have three field commands, which take care of all the core functions that a service does to organize, train, and equip uh, forces for that uh, that that service is responsible for. Uh, you've met uh, previously with Space Systems Command. Uh, that is the field command uh, out in Los Angeles that focuses on the acquisition and development uh, of future capabilities needed to support the space missions. Uh, space Training and Readiness Command, uh, which is currently it's provisionally here in Colorado Springs. We're waiting a uh, official basing decision on where that will be located. They are focused on the transition from things from acquisition through test, uh, through range operations, uh, but they also do things such as the education uh, and uh, and really preparing all of our forces to be effective uh, as they are operated in the future. Uh, that Space Training Readiness Command is the second field command, and then the third one. Uh, is Space Operations Command. And that is here, uh, headquarters out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, We uh, sit in what is the shell of the old Air Force Space Command headquarters building. uh, And uh, and we are focused on the day-to-day operations of all of the space capabilities that the Space Force has purview on. So whether it's the satellite operations, uh, such as the satellite communications I had mentioned previously, plus a number of other missions. uh, And we'll talk, I think, in more detail about those here coming up. Uh, but also all those telescopes and radars, all of the capabilities, the cyber capabilities that we have to defend uh, those uh, those systems as well. That is all packaged underneath uh, Space Operations Command headquarters here out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. So again, Space Force has got the service headquarters, three field commands, uh, and then the unit, the level underneath uh, the field command is the Delta level. And as I said, I think, John, we're going to talk more yeah, about that. Yeah, here. I got a lot of questions for you on those deltas. <laughs> for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Colonel Matthew Cantori, and we're discussing U.S. Space Force and specifically Space Operations Command. Uh, so, Colonel Cantori, could you could you explain what Space Operations Command is? Uh, Bradley, you know, what elements of the U.S. Space Force fall under Space Operations Command? And, and maybe you just used the term Delta. Maybe you could explain exactly what a Delta is. Uh, Colonel Roth from Space Systems Command tried to explain it to me, but, hey, I'm just a dumb Navy guy, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, so maybe you could explain a little bit more about what that Delta nomenclature is the, inside the U.S. Space Force. Absolutely, John. <laughs> John, if you want to think of it, um, you probably could think of it very much like a small company. Um, and the company has a mission. Uh, mission is to execute uh, a certain activity uh, or, or produce a product. The Delta is really our core piece uh, that where that mission is done. Uh, and for us here in Space Operations Command, the Delta is that organizational level 
where we oversee uh, all the operations tied to that specific mission area. Uh, and underneath the Delta, you have squadrons. And so really uh, in the Space Force, we have uh, taken out a couple layers of, uh, of organizational structure. Uh, and I had mentioned how we've gone for a flat model, uh, obviously with the service headquarters, you have the field command, the Delta, and the squadron. Those are the layers, if you will, uh, in the Space Force. Uh, and if you look at some of the other services, uh, you can see that they have additional echelons that they have built into their structure, uh, which I think made sense at the time they were organized and designed. Uh, in Space Force, we're trying to do things uh, a little differently uh, and look at some current models for how we can best uh, organize forces. But again, if you want to think of a Delta, that's where the job gets done. Uh, here at Space Operations Command, uh, we started with uh, Deltas two through nine when we set up the initial architecture. And we decided we would do what we called a functional alignment. In other words, we wanted to pull together all of the like mission areas uh, and sort them in that manner. Um, the old Air Force model uh, had a couple of different echelons. And so uh, as we looked at th that structure, because we are part of the Department of the Air Force, uh, we purposefully uh, collapsed the major command and numbered Air Force levels together. And then we collapsed the wing and group structure together to create the Delta. Uh, and so those are some of the, the changes that you'll see between us and the Air Forces. Um, if you want to think of a Delta, uh, an Army equivalent might be a, a brigade. Uh, and so maybe not in terms of the same number of people, but in terms of the scope of responsibility, uh, the battle space, if you will, as well as the mission given to uh, that organizational unit, that's probably the most akin to it. So here in uh, Space Operations Command, uh, we have Delta II, uh, which is your space domain awareness Delta, Delta III, which is your electromagnetic warfare Delta, Delta IV, which is your missile warning, missile tracking Delta, Delta V, your command, uh, command and control Delta. Delta VI, your cyber ops Delta. Delta VII, your intelligence surveillance reconnaissance Delta. Delta VIII, your satellite, uh, satellite communications and position navigation Delta. And uh, Delta IX is your orbital warfare Delta. And then in the past year though, we added to that mix. So that was the original grouping there. Uh, we added uh, Delta 18, uh, which is the newest, uh, newest Delta, um, but that is tied to the new National Space Intelligence Center uh, and, uh, and they support uh, us as well. So we have two Deltas there tied directly to the Intelligence uh, Surveillance Reconnaissance Mission Area uh, with Delta 18. And I expect that we're probably gonna have growth of an additional Delta here um, as we as we really set up structure and do some continued consolidation from across the joint force. So uh, exciting times here. One of the questions I always get asked is what happened to Delta One? Uh, <laughs> and I don't think you've done the interview with uh, Space Training and Readiness Command yet. No. But we purposely reserved Delta One so that uh, every guardian, so every member of the Space Force would belong to Delta One at some point in their career. And so Delta One is that initial training organization uh, and that, that will run the basic military training as well as the skills training required for guardians in the future. So the idea was that everyone would get the heritage uh, and the opportunity to be part of uh, the first space Delta. Uh, so we skipped that one, we did the numbering and we jumped in at two to nine, now 18, uh, as we uh, currently have a structure. So that's where we are today. Uh, and so it's uh, um, anytime you set up a, a, a very, uh, very large organization, do a, a major uh, shift from uh, where you were, um, you're, you're fine tuning. Uh, a lot of this had to do with the squadrons underneath as we've collapsed echelons between us and, and the Air Force. Um, but I tell you, I think we are very pleased with how we have set up the Delta structure. Uh, then, and it seems to be working very well 
uh, in helping us define uh, the, the capabilities that we're bringing to the joint force, as well as streamlining uh, how we get the job done. And so that's been a, a, great, uh, uh, a great part of the development of Space Force the last couple of years. Of course, the headquarters structure is also uh, all new. I think we're gonna talk about that as well. Uh, and so that is purposely also set up to directly enable and support and make those deltas effective at doing their mission. So U.S. Space Operations Command, as I understand it, is head up, headed up by a three-star general officer. Yeah. Uh, and from what you said, it uh, sounds like there might be like a one-star deputy commanding general like for operations. Is that sort of how it's organized? Yeah, so, uh, so underneath Space Operations Command, uh, we, uh, in the command echelon, we have set ourselves up with three deputy commanding generals. Uh, and we did that very purposefully uh, to help uh, with, all, with a flat organization. We had a lot of folks that were all working directly for uh, the three-star commander of Space Operations Command. This gave uh, that commander the ability to have some additional support uh, and be able to provide uh, oversight for some uh, subsets of the missionaries. So the direct, the deputy commanding general for operations uh, oversees all, as you can imagine, all those pieces and parts, the day-to-day -day activities, as well as the future systems that Space Systems Command is building, Space Training Readiness Commands are testing, uh, and that we are gonna receive into the force and helps us with the integration. The Deputy Command General for Support uh, is focused on personnel, uh, logistics, maintenance, uh, sustainment, as well as uh, the, the financial aspects of how do we take and, and make sure that we can uh, support this uh, this very this this growing enterprise that's so important for our national security. And so you've got the Deputy Commanding General for Ops, the Deputy Commanding General for Support, and then the final one is the Deputy Commanding General for Transformation. Uh, and actually, we we have that led by a Canadian uh, one star uh, who is here as part uh, part uh, a full full member of the team uh, and uh, is uh, is helping us get after some aspects of Space Force uh, that are uh, things that are going to make us different and better in the future. One of the things they're doing uh, is working international partnerships, uh, and then another one is the digital transformation. Uh, we are trying to take advantage of all of the new technology. I'd mentioned how we're trying to, to invigorate the service, take the best parts of being a military service, but also uh, look at the, you know, the 2020s and how do you do business in the 2020s and fuse those, uh, those elements together. And so they are helping us to move from the past into the future uh, and certainly uh, acting as a, a, a uh, an opportunity, uh, a, a, a element of opportunity for us to really push forward uh, in some unique ways. And, and uh, Colonel uh, Matthew Cantore, so uh, from what I saw in the organizational chart for the Space uh, Operations Command, uh, under under that uh, commanding general for operations, there are, what, five major directorates, and one of them is yours, combat power. Yeah. Uh, what capabilities yeah. and responsibilities fall directly under your purview? So day-to-day, -day, uh, John, I, I have uh, four of those missionaries. Uh, and when we purposely set this up so there's a direct one-to-one -one relationship with a corresponding delta. Uh, and I think that will become apparent here in a second. So I worked uh, with uh, the first, the Space Domain Awareness Mission Area. So again, that is understanding what is going on in space. Uh, all those telescopes, all those radars, all of the systems that then take that data, make sense of it, and help us to, to be able to predict where an object will be in the future, uh, as well as uh, be able to find changes in the domain. So say an object was to maneuver, uh, we wanna know that, whether an object had uh, potentially broken up and now there were more pieces uh, of, uh, of debris uh, due to, uh, due to a, a breakup. 
um, or, or whatnot. So the space domain awareness mission area uh, is ours, and that is again tied to Delta II. So we at the headquarters have what we call a mission area team that directly works day in, day out to enable that operational Delta to be effective at, at executing the mission. The, uh, the second missionary I have under combat power is electromagnetic warfare. Uh, and so think about that as understanding what's going on in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, you know, it's probably one of those things that uh, I think a lot of people take for granted, but there's a tremendous amount uh, of use of the spectrum. Uh, and, uh, and so we uh, need to operate in the spectrum as well. Uh, part of that is our defensive team, which is really trying to understand what is going on, uh, who is on what satellite transponders, uh, and make sure that if we find interference, we can work through that and mitigate that so that we can continue our operations. Um, and then uh, uh, the other part of that is on the, uh, the offensive side. Uh, we do provide capability to deny an adversary aspect, uh, certain communications uh, bandwidth on satellite transponders as well. So that is a piece of the mission. They tie directly to Delta three. Uh, and then Delta, uh, Delta six is the cyber uh, Delta. We have a cyber uh, missionary team as well uh, within the combat power directorate. Uh, and they work day in, day out. A lot of what they do is enabling not just cyber security, but also cyber defense. And so cybersecurity, those are your routine control measures, things you put in and bake into uh, your, your capabilities, uh, such as your standard cyber hygiene, changing your passwords, making sure you have the latest patches uh, and updates, and make sure that vulnerabilities uh, are, are closed before they could be exploited by, uh, by someone else. Um, but on the cyber defense side, we also are building teams that are actively monitoring the data going in and out of our various weapon systems. Uh, and so they're looking, they're kind of the, the, the cop on the beat, if you will, but in the cyber domain, domain uh, to make sure that uh, our systems are safe and secure. And so we have the cyber ops uh, uh, missionary team underneath combat power, working directly with our, our cyber Delta, Delta six. And then the last uh, uh, missionary I have under combat power is the orbital warfare Delta. And this really is one of those areas that is making uh, you know, kind of the, the cornerstone of what makes Space Force unique. Uh, we are certainly uh, very interested in what is going on in the domain. Delta 9 uh, is uh, operating right now a number of characterization capabilities, helping us to understand what is, uh, what is uh, transpiring, find those changes uh, so that we can keep uh, ourselves and of course national decision makers aware. Uh, the, the Orbital Warfare Mission Area Team works hand in hand to enable Delta 9 uh, with their missions, such as the geosynchronous space situational awareness program and other systems uh, that Delta 9 has. So those are really the four mission areas uh, that I have the great honor to work with day in, day out. Um, I uh, I was the Space Delta II commander, uh, and so certainly the SDA mission area is one that I'm, I'm close to and it fits well with my, uh, um, my, uh, uh, my career track, uh, but certainly you work with all the mission areas across the board to be able to be effective. Not a single one is sufficient in its own right. They depend upon each other. So my guess is it's a 24-7, uh, 365 days a year watch uh, center that's set up out there covering all these different mission areas? So the, again, the, the beauty of the Delta is that the Delta is the operational hub. So they're the ones doing 24-7, 365, getting the mission done day in, day out. Um, as, the, as the headquarters, um, you know, we're the, we're the enabling element, um, but we, we don't necessarily work, obviously, uh, at that level, but we support them. So if something breaks on the weekend and they need uh, need support and, and the headquarters uh, interface for them, working with Space uh, Training Readiness Command or with 
uh, Space Systems Command, and we will intervene and uh, and work on their behalf to try to get those missions uh, supported uh, and, and enable them with whatever means necessary. What I think is really interesting about uh, the way you've, or, you know, you the Space Force has organized itself and, and certainly this operations side of things is you really, you mentioned earlier, it's a flattened out organization, which means you've oh, yes. pushed a lot of uh, authority uh, down uh, rank levels generally compared to the other services for decision-making authority and, and taking action when action needs to be taken. Uh, I find that absolutely fascinating. And, and frankly, that's really an, an empowering thing for young leaders to have that authority uh, at, at their level to, to take care of national security mission needs. Absolutely. That's been a cornerstone of, of one of the things we wanted to do. We wanted to push decentralized execution out to the lowest possible level, um, allow those uh, those leaders uh, to use their leadership skills uh, and to, to guide their people to execute the mission. And so, uh, yeah, fundamentally, we've, we've kind of changed the paradigm, I think, especially compared to the Air Force. Um, and so this was a clean slate, slate approach. We were able to look back again and try to find those aspects that we thought made sense for the space domain, looking across uh, industry uh, as well as uh, academia and of course all the other military services and uh, and so we're we think we found uh, a unique opportunity here with the space mission area uh, that we're exploring and so it's been it's been great uh, and very empowering to uh, to hand that authority down to those levels uh, to allow the decision making when space force was stood up it was uh, under the uh, previous secretary of the air force uh, barbara barrett uh, were you working directly on the team that uh, was briefing her regularly so I, I was not. I was uh, uh, at the time I, I was finishing up my command as the 21st Operations Group Commander, uh, and then I worked directly for uh, for the Space Operations uh, Command, at least the provisional command at the time, uh, which I think was known as the Space Force Headquarters. Uh, but that was just uh, short-lived as we went through a, a series of rapid uh, adjustments to to conform with uh, the law that was enacted the NDAA in uh, in 2019. Um, and so no, so I worked directly for General Whiting. Uh, and, uh, and General Shaw at the time, uh, two of our, our senior leaders uh, that helped shape uh, Space Force. And really, I focused in on just the, the, the Delta construct uh, and how we were going to set that up. And so that was really my, my focus. All right. So for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Colonel Matthew Cantori from the U.S. Space Force, and we're discussing Space Operations Command. Uh, Colonel Cantori, let's discuss one other directorate. You mentioned a little bit the Intelligence Directorate. Uh, from my reading of the organizational charts, uh, Deltas 5 and 7 are inside uh, that Intel Directorate. Is, is that right? How does the Intel Directorate support space operations? And I ask this because I'm a, I'm a retired intelligence guy. I know yeah. that Intel and ops are always joined at the hip in the U.S. military. Uh, what can you talk about uh, the Intelligence Directorate for Space Force? Well, this has been fascinating. So if you looked at the old uh, Air Force model for how it integrated uh, what we call ISR, Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance, there was a distinct link that you would see, especially in the aviation units. Um, it was very closely aligned uh, and they supported all their tactical activities day in, day out. The space connection had never been as tight in the, in the uh, even under the Air Force. And so as we went to design this new construct going forward in the Space Force, we said, we've got to change that. And so there has been a very intentional effort to shift uh, the integration. Uh, and as we say, and as you said, Intel drives ops. And we believe that 
that, that that is at its core. It has to be if we're going to be able to be threat informed and execute our missions in the most effective means possible. And so when we structured uh, the Intel enterprise was a cornerstone of how we were going to set up the deltas and partner. So we do have Delta 7. Delta 7 is the core uh, delta for ISR, and it has uh, within it uh, those all of the key enabling elements that then are broken up and then day-to-day uh, -day aligned to support all of those other space ops mission and cyber ops mission activities uh, that are critical in uh, in the service. So Delta-7 is the core uh, core Delta. Delta-5 is the command and, uh, command and control Delta. Right now, it's uh, known as the uh, Combined uh, Space Operations Center out at Vandenberg Space Force Base, California. Um, and so there's a subset of that, which has an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance function as well tied directly to the C2. Uh, and then in the we have the, the Dell 18 is the, the newest uh, ISR Delta. Uh, and that really is focused on the National Space Intelligence Center, which is foundational intelligence uh, to support the acquisition, test, training, and eventually operations as well. But they don't focus in Intel for the day-to-day. -day. They're looking more at the big picture and the trends and the deep analysis uh, of, uh, of the adversaries uh, so that we understand exactly what capabilities are developing. And so we're ready to meet the threat ahead of when they're ready to challenge us. Um, and uh, and so those are, are the key pieces. So again, if you want to say ISR, Delta 7 is the core. Delta 5 has a little piece in it. Uh, and Delta 18, those are the core pieces of our ISR enterprise. But the way we structured, though, uh, was that underneath Delta 7, the 71st Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance Squadron has detachments, and it has a detachment for every single one of the space and cyber mission uh, deltas. And so the 71st ISRS, as we call it, uh, Detachment 2 directly supports Space Delta 2 and the SDA mission. Their Detachment 3 supports the Electromagnetic Warfare mission under Delta 3 and so on and so forth. And so that was done very intentionally so that we have that, that connective tissue between the ISR enterprise and the ops. Again, Intel drives ops, we believe it. Um, the other thing that was beneficial with the structure is it allowed us to align, align some of the Title 50 cryptological service authorities mm. uh, that uh, we, we didn't have access to in our old structure with how Space Intel uh, was or was not best integrated. We do in this new structure. And so we're working and learning how we best can leverage those capabilities going forward. Uh, and again, that partnership is only going to intensify in the, uh, the years ahead. So, uh, John, I'm, I, uh, I'm glad you have that ex-Intel uh, background. Uh, I'm an ops guy, uh, and yet we're having a great conversation, and that's how it is every day in Space Force. We have to have that linkage between Intel and ops. I'm going to quote you going forward because uh, you're an operator, and, and, and the fact that you said that Intel drive ops uh, drives ops. I, I was trying to make that point throughout my entire career, and, boy, it fell on, on deaf ears with a lot of the operators. Uh, so, Colonel, I want to bring up uh, something that I think is really great about how space operations is, 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 has been developed. Uh, and that, there's that combined operations capacity inside Space Force. You mentioned a little while ago, yeah, but one of your deputy commanding generals is, uh, is actually a Canadian. Uh, so for our audience, for our listeners, uh, in U.S. military discussions, when you hear the term joint, it means two or more U.S. U.S. military services are included in an exercise or an operation. And when we hear the term combined, 
That means the U.S. and one or more of our allied or friendly nations' militaries are involved in an exercise or an operation. And most of the real-world operations that are out there today are all combined operations. The U.S. partners up with a whole bunch of different countries to, to carry out operations. Uh, Colonel Cantori, in the case of the Space Force, it has been designed from the very beginning with the idea of partnering with other nations. Uh, and there is a combined capacity for space operations built into the whole thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about those partnerships with the allied and friendly nations? How, how does that work? <laughs> and where do the representative officers from other nations report for duty? Yeah, absolutely, John. So uh, we see no future where the U.S. is going to do any sort of major space activity alone. Uh, it is going to be a partnership. And so it is so critical that as we go forward, we set the constructs and relationships up so that we can work hand in hand seamlessly uh, with our allies and partners. Uh, and I think we'll talk about the commercial sector if we have a chance, but if we don't, I'll just say that right now, they're also a key partner uh, and that we have to work with. Uh, but uh, every day um, we have Canadians, Australians, uh, UK uh, personnel, um, that are involved in our activities day in, day out. And that's just the beginning. I think, you know, as we call it, the Four Eyes Partnership, um, but there's there's more than that. Um, working with the Japanese, the French, uh, the Germans, and others are getting more and more involved uh, with wanting to work hand-in-hand hand, uh, with uh, the United States and its, uh, its space capabilities. So uh, combined ops are a real thing uh, for how we do space activities. Um, they're only going to continue. Um, as I said, uh, you know, we have a, a one star. So of our deputy command generals, one is a foreign officer, uh, and yet he is just as ingrained and, uh, and just as critical and, and involved as, as all the other U.S. Uh, senior leaders uh, in this uh, this headquarters and, and throughout the Space Force. Um, and uh, in fact, underneath my, uh, my Space Command Awareness team, I have an Australian uh, officer uh, who comes and sits and works with us day in, day out. Right. Uh, within our deltas, we are getting an increasing number of, uh, of foreign personnel officer enlisted um, that are uh, trained and certified on some of the systems that we operate. Uh, for example, under uh, Space Delta II, uh, we have Canadians um, that are uh, tied into, and UK members that are tied to our command and control system uh, to help us keep track of all of the objects on orbit. Uh, they uh, they go to work just like our folks do. They operate on the same systems. They have the same accesses in most cases. And it's been a, a tremendous uh, ability for us to, to really partner uh, day in, day out. Uh, and I think you're going to see more of those foreign partners working on some of our systems uh, down down the road. So uh, it's we, we can't do the job without them. And uh, we absolutely need to integrate them further and uh, and then work through the challenges that we have from policy limitations or whatnot. Um, but uh, I only see a tighter and tighter partnership going forward uh, between us and our partners. And, and you have mentioned a little bit already uh, in our discussions today about that importance in partnering between uh, military and, uh, and the commercial sector. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, articles that have come out in the papers and, and whatnot. Uh, talking about that uh, that hybrid space architecture uh, for national security and for economic uh, reasons. Uh, I, I see clearly that there is a, a, st a strong direct partnership developing with industry. Colonel, Colonel Roth talked about that for the uh, Space Systems Command discussion. Uh, vital connection between uh, the military and the, and the uh, commercial industry. What might you be able to tell us about uh, the way in which Space Operations Command partners with industry uh, in the United States to make our nation safer? 
So it's funny. I, I actually was uh, on a, a business trip or what we call a temporary duty assignment last week. Uh, and I was out in Los Angeles at the Space Systems Command, and I sat next to Colonel Joe Roth. Uh, <laughs> Joe and I uh, have worked together for a number of projects for, for many years. Um, we were actually together at what was co- called the Tactically Responsive Space Reverse Industry Day. And in that day, uh, Space Systems Command was uh, talking directly with industry about a mission area that they are trying to develop and grow into, and they wanted to know from industry what industry could provide and what solutions were already being developed uh, in uh, in various companies from around the, the nation uh, that we could potentially tap into. Um, we realized uh, that for our space capabilities to remain uh, the most advanced and capable uh, needed for us to support our national security and our allies' needs, uh, we've got to partner with industry. There's so much innovation. There's so much uh, uh, pushing forward. I mean, we all see what SpaceX is doing, but that's just one example in the launch business and with the, the Starlink constellation. There are many, many, many others that are also continuing to advance the ball. Uh, and it's been very exciting to partner with them. So I was out at Reverse Industry Day uh, to talk about the operations aspect uh, of how we would partner for these new missions as well. And so, uh, Space Operations Command is just as interested in Space Systems Command because anything that's, that gets through and gets designed and, and uh, uh, presented uh, to us by the acquisitions community, well, quite frankly, they hand us the keys in a very organized and uh, well-designed process for transition. And then ultimately we accept it. And then we operate it day in, day out. We can't do it without Space Systems Command, Space Training Readiness Command, and the commercial partners that really provide uh, and design the bulk of those capabilities going forward. Um, and it doesn't make sense for us to, to create everything from scratch. Uh, if if industry has it and is already pushing the ball, we want them to continue to push the ball forward as best and as vigorously as they can. And then we're going to uh, we're gonna buy that capability from them or pay for service, whatever the, the model is that is appropriate uh, so that we can uh, provide the best capability to the joint force and to our allies going forward. So I, I see I see a strong, strong link. Uh, and, and I do want to say, you know, with, for the, the audience here, we want people to join Space Force. We want you to be excited about the mission. Um, but if you're not interested or you're not able to join the military, um, then being involved in the astronautics uh, enterprise across this nation uh, in the commercial industry is an amazing location or amazing spot where you can contribute to the national security and benefit the nation as well. We This is a, a tight partnership and we definitely need the best and brightest minds to help continue to uh, to support the capability development. You know, I'll, I'll echo one of the things you said about the importance of uh, the, the commercial industry out there, defense contractors included. Uh, we, on our show, Public Policy this week, this past Friday, we were talking about aquaculture and uh, deep offshore aquaculture. <laughs> And it turns out that the technologies needed to make that uh, viable as an industry capability came from Lockheed Martin, of all places. They had this technology that they had developed. They couldn't figure out a way to use it on the military side of things, so they spun off a, a development company that went out and created aquaculture for uh, ocean fish farming. <laughs> I'm sure you're probably not going to do any uh, you know, fish farming in space, but hey, you know, it, there's all kinds of technologies that are out there in the defense, uh, <laughs> defense world that can be put to use uh, for, for the military. Uh, Colonel Matthew Cantori, we're closing in on the end of our show today. we got about 12 minutes left. Uh, there's a, lot, a couple other things that I'd like to cover. 
I'm going to sure. throw a couple of curveballs at you. Uh, there have okay. been a lot of articles that have been out talking about the fact that we are in a no-kidding space race right now with China. Uh, Colonel Roth talked a little bit about that. Previous guests that we've had on the show talked a little bit about it as well. And uh, we also know that we have some challenges from our from our old uh, competitor in space, uh, the Russians. Uh, I have a great article here from uh, the, the the War Zone, which is uh, off the webs the the, the internet talking about a Russian satellite that was put up uh, that's uh, referred to as an inspector satellite, uh, which is not really an inspector satellite <laughs> at all, but uh, actually provides a little bit of danger to uh, to our and our allied satellites that are up in operation. Now, I don't want you to get anything classified. We know that. Uh, but obviously the challenge from uh, China and Russia is pretty significant, and Space Operations Command uh, is the one that's dealing with that for our own national security interests in space uh, can you say a few words about the, how big of a challenge it is that we have out there dealing with uh, China and Russia specifically? Yeah, absolutely, John. Uh, I tell you, if you uh, if you look back to the the old Soviet Union uh, and, and the space race that we were in there, uh, it it certainly uh, the whole nation was focused on that competition we had between the Soviet Union and the United States back in the the, the Cold War. Um, that uh, after the fall of the Cold War. The, uh, the capabilities and the focus certainly changed. You know, 9-11 occurred. We were in a very much a counterterrorism uh, uh, approach as a nation, and we very much were trying to, to shore up those those threats. And at the time, you know, we were talking about the unipolar world. I'm sure uh, that's probably a, a term that uh, many folks will, will recall uh, from the early 2000s. Well, that's not the world we live in anymore. Nope. <laughs> uh, as uh, as the uh, as time has gone on, uh, the uh, the Russians uh, and uh, and the Chinese have both proven very capable uh, at, uh, at designing and developing uh, and operating uh, in the space domain, uh, as well as many other domains. Uh, and um, and just like the uh, the age of sail, uh, where navies were there to uh, preserve and protect commerce uh, operating in the the maritime domain. Uh, we're seeing the same transition going on right now uh, in, in the space domain. Uh, and so as corporations uh, and nations are operating and depending more and more on the vital capabilities provided uh, through uh, or from, uh, from space, um, the area, uh, the domain is becoming more uh, contested. Uh, and, and so that is a reality that we see uh, every day. Uh, and uh, we are, as I talked about, how Intel drive ops. We are using, obviously, our intelligence capabilities to, to keep tabs and, and monitor what is going on in the domain because we want a peaceful space domain. We do not want hostility. Uh, we want operations to continue unfettered for all parties that are, that are using it. But, but the space domain becomes a critical part uh, of, uh, of projecting combat power and, uh, and really uh, enabling the U.S. Uh, to be able to, to maintain the safety and security of our people and our allies uh, abroad. Uh, and so we are very concerned, and we are observing uh, actions that are inconsistent uh, with the peaceful expectations and norms in the domain, uh, and we have grave concerns about that. And so, uh, so we certainly are very poised to, to monitor uh, and, uh, and keep tabs on those. Uh, and you're seeing, I think, more and more. All those articles you talked about is indicative of, uh, of what we are uh, observing going on in the domain. Uh, and I think it's great uh, that the American public is not only informed, but that you're starting to get concerned uh, that, that there are things that are going on uh, in the domain that uh, maybe are, are far more 
uh, hostile uh, and, and militaristic than is really necessary and, and, and is inconsistent with some of the messaging that you'll see uh, out of uh, out of other nations. So uh, so we are very, very focused on, on, on what is going on. Uh, and certainly we want to make sure that we're postured so that we are aware uh, and we can provide decision makers uh, the best information of what's going on in the domain and then provide them options uh, of uh, how do you respond uh, to those things accordingly. I have to imagine that uh, because you're a military service, like all the other military services, there's a lot of wargaming that takes place. Uh, and so Space Operations Command is probably directly involved in a lot of the uh, wargaming for how, how to defend U.S. assets in space and uh, support for military operations and just American national security in general. Is that true? Yeah, so we uh, we have a number of, of uh, war games and exercise series that we support. Obviously, again, the U.S. military does not operate uh, with one service alone. We are a joint force, and as you mentioned, we are combined uh, with, with our allies as well. And so space is no different than any of the other uh, domains, and, and, uh, and we operate, and we have to think about how we work together. Uh, in effect, uh, in, uh, in the space domain, uh, could have a, a series of connections uh, with things that may occur in the maritime domain or in the, uh, in, in the air domain. Uh, and so we certainly are working uh, across the board to figure out how do we best operate and synchronize activities across them. Um, the Schriever War Game Series. So General Schriever uh, is one of the forefathers of uh, of the space uh, missionary under then the Air Force uh, and now the Space Force. Like we have one of our bases named uh, after uh, General Schriever. Uh, we uh, we use that series to think to the future and think about how can we best be poised to uh, go to support the nation as uh, threats change and evolve. Uh, and certainly we, we're looking uh, to make sure that we are there when our nation needs us. So we only have about five minutes left, but I always try to give our, uh, our guests uh, the last word. Uh, what haven't we covered today that we absolutely cannot forget to address? Uh, what would you like to discuss in the time we have left? Uh, threats to the United States from space operations by other nations? Maybe you'd like to talk a little bit more about the people who are serving at Space Operations Command. Uh, I'll give you three minutes uh, to make your pitch. <laughs> And John, actually, it was that second point that you said there is exactly what I wanted to bring up. It's all about the people. We have some of the best people uh, in the nation working in this industry, whether you are a member of Space Force as a guardian or, or one of our, uh, our government civilians that are part of the team or any of the contractors that are working day in, day out, either developing capability, uh, helping us to, to work and integrate that into operations. Uh, and all of the, the requisite pieces. What makes this organization special uh, is is the people. Uh, and so we are we are definitely in in the search of uh, of the right folks to help augment and, and benefit us. So if there's folks out there, especially in Minnesota or, or elsewhere, uh, and you've ever thought that you want to support the nation, and yet you you didn't know, quite know how to do it, maybe you weren't sure about uh, putting on a uniform or whatnot. The space force is different. Uh, and the Space Force is thinking about how do we use this technology? How do we operate in this domain? It's one that uh, that I think uh, inspires many of us. And we look at the Artemis One, the, the man, uh, sorry, the unmanned lunar uh, test launch that is going to occur here soon, uh, circumlunar, uh, and then the follow-on missions uh, that will be operating in the domain. There is so much excitement going on in space. Uh, we need the best, and we we have tremendous people now, and we need we need to continue to bring in uh, new bright minds, as well as folks that are dedicated to support in this mission area. Um, I like to say it's the people that are the special sauce that makes Space Force tick, uh, and I truly believe that. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about service academies, and yes, we focus very much on uh, on the uh, the 
core competencies and uh, the, the technical piece of what we uh, present to the nation, um, but that leadership piece. Uh, and uh, I use those leadership traits uh, every day to focus on making sure we have the best and brightest and most ready team to be able to, to provide capabilities for the nation. And really, again, all that options for uh, for senior decision makers for the nation going forward. So we got a great team here at Space Operations Command. I love coming to work every day. I love working with people like Joe Roth at SSC uh, and many others across the other uh, field commands and the service headquarters and with our joint and allied partners uh, and commercial industry. It is a great uh, industry we have. Uh, and uh, one that I'm really proud to uh, to be a part of. So the people are what makes it special. If you're sitting on the sidelines and thinking about what do you want to do next, and maybe you have a uh, a special uh, connection with any of these mission areas or the technical piece, uh, think about Space Force. Think about uh, what you can do and what you can bring to it. And we definitely are trying to continue to grow uh, and build the best team possible. So Colonel Matthew Cantori, I'm a I'm an old broken down uh, retired naval intelligence officer just turned 55 today but you just motivated me so much that I think I want to return return to service become a a guardian in the space force and join the orbital warfare delta. Uh, can I get in? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. there's all sorts of opportunities. We are using, uh, you know, recruiting through the Department of the Air Force means. Uh, but certainly, if there's folks that are interested, uh, reach out. Uh, we've, we've got certainly folks. There's websites as well for Space Operations Command as well as across the service. Um, there's contact info. We, we definitely want to try to bring, bring uh, in the right folks that are, are dedicated and motivated uh, to support the nation. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we're, we're right at the end of our show today for National Security This Week. Uh, Colonel Matthew Cantori from the U.S. Space Force, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. Really glad to be here and uh, look forward to, uh, to talking to you and to others about Space Force in the future. All right. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. If you like this show, tune in to Public Policy This Week every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. This week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.